We are finishing up with the Gospel of Luke. It's been a really good walk through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to, if you get your, start turning your books, your Bibles to uh, chapter 24, we're going to do verses 50 through 53 this morning. Now there is, by the way, there is a handout on the back table, and I just want to point out it's a front and back, <clears throat> but I'm only going to, the front is for the notes for this morning, and the back is something that you can use to consider during the week a little bit more detail about some of the things we're talking about this morning. Don't have time to go through all those things this morning, but you'll have something that you can use during the week. So let's read through the passage and then pray this morning. Luke 24, 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So I pray this morning that Christ would give us all the grace we need to understand and feel the significance of these historical events. And according to what we heard last week from Tom in Luke 24, that's the work of the risen Christ. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's what we want for ourselves this morning. So let's pray. Let's pray and ask for that. Jesus, we believe that you died for our sins. You rose on the third day. You ascended to the right hand of majesty on high and that you are coming again. I and we pray this morning that your spirit would help us to see and feel what that means, that you will be revealed in unspeakable cosmic glory. We know someday in the future you will roll up the sky like a scroll and throw it away and you will cleanse the earth and sweep it clean with judgment and you will make a new heaven and new earth in your planned time. Forgive us that we're so easily entangled and enamored by the things of this world. Help us this morning to see, understand, and take to heart the significance of the ascension of our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. <laughs> Did I get an amen out there? That's pretty good. I like that. <laughs> Oh, 
key point at the top of your handout for this morning is we should have joy. No, we should have great joy because Jesus' physical resurrection and ascension guarantees our bodily resurrection and our place in his kingdom both now and in the future. That's the key point. This passage on the ascension is absolutely amazing. I got to tell you that at first I had no idea what I was getting into when I said, here I am, Lord, send me. <laughs> Have me preach on this. And uh, I was like, as the time was coming, I can still remember driving down the road, and I'm thinking, so really what's going on here? Why, why, why did Jesus ascend when he did? And it just started to bug me. And so I started, as I'm going into the, the prep for the sermon, um, I was kind of stuck trying to answer the why. So I got a help. I gotta tell you, I got a lot of help from some good some good guys out there, Piper and MacArthur and Alistair Begg. <clears throat> and and they all came at this from a different way and they just opened up for me a lot of things. I learned a lot, more than typical. And so I was pleasantly surprised how good this small package of verses, how good it is. And it's very interesting that this is how Luke ends the story. Here's what, here's what Alistair Begg had to say. He said, A moment's thought will make clear that without the ascension, the story is incomplete. With an incomplete story, we'll focus on the wrong things and get it dreadfully wrong. So that our focus and our preoccupation is not with a bloodied and distressed Christ, but our focus and preoccupation is with a kingly Christ, a reigning Christ, one who is now at his Father's side. Therefore, we have a most necessary reminder in these closing verses of Luke where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. The departure of Christ into heaven is arguably the least considered aspect of the work of Christ. The average person in the street will know something about the birth of Jesus if they know anything at all, they'll probably know something about the death of Jesus. But if you were to ask them, where is Jesus presently and what's he doing? Well, I think a lot of them would be at a loss to fully explain. But that's how Luke ends the story. It's where he ends the story here, but it's also where he picks up the story in Acts 1. And I want to jump ahead to that just for a little bit because there's a, a kind of a transition that happens 
before the passage we're going to look at in Luke. So if you would, turn and look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, as, as you've heard before, Luke wrote both of these accounts. He wrote the gospel first, and then he wrote the book of Acts seconds, second. Acts 1, 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things regarding the kingdom of God. This is kind of like a, a transition statement that, that is here for us in the opening verses of Acts. Luke, Luke is telling us that over a period of about six weeks, he made appearances to the disciples and the followers that he had, and he taught them concerning the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus didn't simply rise from the dead and directly go to heaven. That is not how it happened. Now, he could have done that, but he didn't. And that, that was part of the question that I had, that I, I wanted an answer to. After all, I was thinking, the work of redemption's done, right? The work of redemption is done. He died on the cross, and then he rose from the dead. Why, why not just go to the Father at that point? Well, one of, the, one of the commentators, I think, correctly suggests this is a wonderful, gracious friend and Savior that Jesus is because, really, he takes time over these 40 days to be with and among his disciples and other followers. And in appearing to them, he answers their questions. He tries to get rid of their fears. He teaches them all they need to know. And as we saw last week in verses 45, 6, and 7, he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And then he prepared them for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then, and only then, did he leave. It's a mark of his grace and his kindness that he stayed around in order to provide in this transitional period. And it is a kind of encouragement that I think his followers, his disciples needed. And perhaps later on in later years, <coughs> when the time came for them to write down much of this material, they were probably very glad for this transition. 
So given that, let's unpack these three or four verses. Let's start with Luke 25:50. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. So Luke has now recorded this ascension here at the end of 20, 20, 24, verse 50. Luke has recorded this here, and he's recorded it in Acts 1, 1 through 12. And in here, it says he led them out as far as Bethany. In the Acts passage, it says he took them to the place called Mount Olivet. Now, it's not a discrepancy. These two locations are just right, right next to each other. Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, and right next to it is the Mount of Olives. And just to kind of give you a reinforcement to, to how that's referenced, when we were back in Luke 19.29, it said, Jesus drew near to Bethany at Mount called Olivet. Okay. The two were so close together that if a person was on the Mount of Olives, he could be said to be at Bethany. So this is where the ascension takes place. We know from Acts chapter 1, 6 through 8, after they gathered there, they talked about the kingdom and about the work of witnessing after Jesus was gone. But this piece in the Gospel of Luke doesn't deal with, with any of that. It just says, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And then he goes on, while he, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So the very last thing that Jesus says when he's here on planet Earth is a blessing. It's kind of cool. It's kind of comforting. Now, you might have expected it to be like a tearful parting and goodbye. But that's eventually not what the passage says. There's none of that that's going on in the passage. In fact, it ends with joy. And so we need to, I think, spend a little bit of time thinking about, okay, why is there joy if he's leaving? What's going on there? The assurance of reunion alone is not enough to turn the departure of our best friend or beloved into a time of rejoicing. Yeah, there could be some hope, and it could take the sting out of our separation, 
but does it fill us with joy at the separation? Well, it would be nice to know exactly what that blessing was, but there's nothing in Scripture that gives us the specifics. There is a suggestion, though, that was given that perhaps that blessing was the ironic benediction from Numbers chapter 6, one you're all very familiar with. It goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. Remember, he lifts his hands. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace. Perhaps that's the kind of blessing that Jesus was giving. It's an interesting way to say goodbye, isn't it? But perhaps that's one of a number of things that actually resulted in joy rather than sadness. Next verse, Luke 24, 51. While he was doing this, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. If we look at the the parallel passage in Acts 1.9, it says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So Jesus ascends. Now, this is not like a Superman thing where, boom, he goes, right? That's not how the ascension is, is unfolding. <clears throat> and... Uh, it's also interesting to consider some of the other accounts in these 40 days. You would see Jesus all of a sudden appear and then all of a sudden disappear, right? That is not how he left. He didn't just disappear. He ascended. Something to consider his followers would not have been completely blindsided by this because he actually told them a number of things about his leaving. Back in Luke chapter 9, if you remember, we had a discussion some time ago about the passage in Luke chapter 9 called the Transfiguration. And if you remember, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and they went up on the mountain to pray. And in the context of that, verse 30, 930, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, and they were talking with Jesus. And what did they talk about? It says, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. 
Now, Alistair has a suggestion here that he makes about what's going on. He says, he was about to bring his departure to fulfillment. It's an interesting expression. In other words, it's almost as if the whole thing was about his departure. His whole journey was a prolonged departure, that he had left the glory of heaven, he had come to earth, he'd been born as a baby, he lived as a man, died as a savior, and the whole thing was working towards his departure. And he points out that the word here for departure is actually the word exodus. He spoke about his exodus. Moses was also able to speak about an exodus. He'd been able to take Israel out and beg, suggest, perhaps, they compared exoduses with one another. You know, like Moses said, well, you remember my exodus brought the people out of Egypt, liberated them from bondage of Egypt? And Jesus says, yes, that was wonderful. And in my exodus, I'm going to lead my people out from the bondage of sin. And then a little bit later, in verse 51 of chapter 9, Luke reinforces this again, and he describes the timeline in relation to his, his ascension. Luke 9.51 says, As the time approached for his ascension, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. It doesn't say, as the time for his death approached, he set for Jerusalem. There are other passages that do that. This passage emphasizes it was the time for his ascension. That's ultimately what he was doing. He's ultimately going to do what needs to be done and then to go back to the Father. Now, perhaps, I don't know, but... I'm sure after 40 days of interacting with Jesus, the disciples recalled a number of things from days before. In John 14, 28, he's, Jesus told them, this was at the Last Supper, you heard me say, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. This is something joyful for Jesus because to return to the Father is so much more glorious than to be here on earth. He goes on to say, I came from the Father and have come into the world again. I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Father, glorify, my, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was made. John 16 and 17. And since the disciples loved Jesus, how could they help but rejoice at the glorious reunion of Jesus and 
the Father. Can you imagine the disciples are there with Jesus on Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives, perhaps at the spot or near the spot where six weeks earlier he was sweating blood just before the crucifixion. Can you imagine Jesus here now saying in these last moments, I wish I could help you see what I'm about to see and hear and feel and the embrace I'm going to have with my Father. I wish you would understand how much joy that's going to bring me. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Just like I said back in John 15. Then you would rejoice and no one would take away your joy. John 16. And then perhaps he gives the blessing and he was gone. So should they not rejoice in the Lord? Really? There's no reason to be sad. Perhaps that's another reason for great joy, for Jesus was going home. But there's some other reasons. The ascension of Jesus is a reason for great joy because the, because the disciples love Jesus, but there's benefits that come to us also because Jesus has returned to the Father. When Jesus ascended and sat down at the Father's right hand, he certified once and for all the achievement of the cross. He demonstrated his sacrifice was sufficient to atone for all our sin. You've heard us mention many times that the book of Hebrews makes it plain, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the sacrifice for Christ for our sins is contrasted with the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. As follows, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What does this have to do with sitting at God's right hand? Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's a reason for joy. And when he sat down at God's right hand, it signified the final payment had been made Therefore, the ascension is the seal that everything had been done to take away the sins of those who trust in him 
and are sanctified by him. So he's effectively telling his disciples, I'm not leaving because the work of atonement was too hard. I'm leaving because it is finished. But there still remains more to be done. It's not as if the son sacrificed himself, brings us to the father, and then just leaves us there. We would never stand. There remains his role to be our mediator, our go-between, our advocate. We approach the father only through our high priest who pleads his own, his own wounds on our behalf forever. Two passages confirm that. Hebrews 7.25 He is also able for all time to save forever those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. When Jesus goes back up to be with the Father, at the right hand, he continually is making intercession for us. Romans 8, 33, 34. Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Therefore, the ascension of Jesus to God's right hand not only certifies a satisfactory atonement, it begins the internal intercessory work of Christ, guaranteeing we will always have access to the Father forever. And then finally, the ascension can be joyful because it means Jesus reigns supreme over all our enemies. 1 Peter 3.22 says, Jesus has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers that are subject to him. And when you hear that kind of language, you should quickly be thinking about the passage in Ephesians. Ephesians 6, 12, where it talks about the physical, not physical opposition, but principalities and power and spiritual hosts of wickedness. And that's who now Jesus is reigning over. And all of this is for our sake, for the church, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things to the church. These are all reasons to be joyful. These are all things that I think the disciples 
after Jesus has opened up their minds to the scripture and are recalling that are now going, this is a joyful moment. More than joyful. It's great joy. The disciples also must have believed that this is not the end. There will be a reunion which is going to happen. Just weeks earlier, he told the disciples that a time was coming when men would faint with fear. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's not too long ago in chapter 21, verse 26. And also, as we already read in Acts 1.11, the angels said, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this departure is not final. There would be a reunion. Separation's not final. The disciples and we will see Jesus again. And so then we come, and that's why we can see what we see here in 24 verses 52 and 53. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So after this, after Jesus ascends, they're worshiping him. By the way, this is the first time in the book of Luke that he mentions the disciples worshiping Jesus. Now they get it. And it's also interesting to note the story that Luke has painted for us in this gospel, in a sense, begins and ends in the same place, the temple. In chapter 1, Luke 1, 4 through 22, the temple, Luke 2, verse 10, the angels say they bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And so because there is this joy, it fuels worship. Their response to the ascension and the joy that they now feel, not sadness, not fear, joy that they feel generates worship. It's not a time of grief. So why did the disciples have great joy when Jesus ascended? And we looked at all these things. Luke really wants us to ask ourselves, is my life filled with joy because Jesus is ascended? Am I continually blessing God because Jesus ascended? And it should cause us to worship him and rejoice because 
it does signify the completion of his earthly ministry. On your handout, I put a sequence to consider based on everything we've said. And I inserted a piece that we hadn't looked at yet. But here's the sequence of events that we're talking about. Number one, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus stays on planet Earth for 40 days. We see that in Acts chapter 1. Two, after 40 days, Jesus ascends and he goes up in a cloud. That's Acts 1 and Luke 24. Three, there's a passage back in Daniel chapter 7. We looked at it when we did the men's study on the book of Daniel. And Alistair Begg uh, talks about it in a book that we're using in our Thursday night study, Name Above All Names by Alistair Begg. Excellent, excellent book. And that passage in Daniel was a vision that Daniel had. And it's Daniel 7, 13, and 14, and it goes like this. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom so that all the people's nations and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This, in effect, is his coronation. This is when he's coronated as king, and he receives his kingdom. Now, he's up in heaven, and we go to B. As we see before, he continues to intercede for us and advocate for us, as we saw in Hebrews. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who come to him, through, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. C, another passage that Jesus is doing while he's there, from John 14. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you also will be. That's what's happening today in heaven. Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is preparing a place for us. And then four, he's also staging 
a point in time when he's going to return to planet Earth to judge and rule in his kingdom for eternity. And he's going to come down in a cloud. Luke 21, 27. At that point, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Acts 1, 11, we saw. He's going to come in the same way as you watched him go into heaven. He goes up in a cloud. He goes to the throne to be coronated in a cloud. He comes back to judge in a cloud. That's exciting. That's exciting. When we think of the ascension, however we try and grapple with it, we shouldn't miss, though, the significant point, namely that we're now faced with the absence of his physical presence. But we enjoy the availability of his spiritual presence because we have the Holy Spirit. It's the one thing he said would happen, and he had to go back to the Father in order for that to happen. So while they wait for the return of the king, they get about the business of repentance and forgiveness of sins, preaching his name to all the nations. And at the bottom of that, you could have written, to be continued. And then you would eventually go to the Acts of the Apostles and you'd say, to be continued as well. And when you get to the end of the Acts of the Apostles, you'd say, to be continued in Kennesaw, Georgia, where we are today. So where is Jesus? He's ascended, and he's king. What's he doing? He's getting your room ready, and he's pleading your case. And finally, he's getting ready to return again. And the ascension guarantees and secures this second coming. So if we go all the way back from the birth of Christ to the ascension of Christ, from his arrival to his departure, we get a picture, a big picture of the whole thing. He's exalted by his ascension, crowned as Lord. He sends the Holy Spirit. He begins to prepare our eternal home. He takes the headship of the church. He defeats Satan. He passes evangelism and ministry to his followers. He begins the blessed work of intercession on behalf of his people, and he stands ready to return in God's perfect time. All of that... <laughs> is baked into this little passage here at the end of Luke. It's amazing. It's really amazing. And it's reason for joy. So, a couple of takeaways. Stephen Cole was a commentator I, I came across, and 
And he's had a couple of interesting thoughts for us here. He comments on our need for worship, noting that Christ's representatives must worship him before they work for him. As was said earlier in Luke, the disciples worshipped Jesus. That was the first time that that was ever mentioned in Luke. And worship should always precede work. Any work we do for the Lord should be the overflow of our hearts being full of adoration and love for him. Now, we hear a lot, though, about burnout in ministry. One major cause of burnout is when our work gets ahead of our worship. When we feel we're just cranking out whatever we do to serve the Lord, we need to stop and get our hearts right before him. The hands that Jesus lifted up in blessing were pierced hands. And as the disciples gazed upward at Jesus, lifting up his hands, they would have been reminded that he gave, them, gave himself for them on the cross. That's the motivation for all that we do for the Lord. Interesting comment. Worship should precede work. There was a thought someone published along the way, too, that said something like this. Sometimes the Lord says, wait, as he instructed the eleven. Our pattern should always be God's work done in God's power, in God's timing, and for God's glory. Amen? Let me say that again. Something I need to be reminded of. Our pattern should always be God's work done in God's power, in God's timing, and for God's glory. Another thing to consider and take away from this, the ascension serves in a way as the launching pad for his conquest and return. He didn't ascend into heaven for nothing. <clears throat> he may have been seated, but as we saw, he's not been idle. In a way, it was from heaven's throne that Jesus launched his last day's offensive sending the Holy Spirit for the disciples and the start of his church. It began at Pentecost. He pours out the Holy Spirit and they begin liberating the nations. According to Jesus, that's one of the main objectives for the ascension. <clears throat> he said, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. People from every nation 
have been purchased, they now have to be gathered. And we can't do it alone. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Until the Spirit was given, the Great Commission could not advance. But until Jesus ascended, he could not be given. It was only when being exalted at the right hand of God that Jesus could pour out the Spirit, as we saw in Acts 2.33. Something else to remember. As a person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit mediates the power and presence of both Father and Son, such that, in a, in a sense, Jesus is with us even now. This is how, despite being in heaven, Jesus can promise to be with us till the end of the age, until the harvest is gathered and the mission is accomplished. <clears throat> but this age won't last forever, and the mission won't be completed with Jesus sitting down. One day, one day, he's going to get up. And when he does, the whole world will know it. His enemies will be made his footstool, his friends, vice regents, and his creation will be made a paradise. From heaven we await a Savior who will transform our lowly body and restore all things. And someday he's going to descend again. And when that day comes... We'll no longer have to choose between being present in our body and absent from the Lord. Until then, we wait. But we don't waste the ascension. We don't, we don't sit down just yet because our work isn't finished. Jesus is absent. Let us cultivate a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better that's okay. Even as we seek to be faithful here on earth, Jesus is king, so let us worship, bow down, and recognize the universe is not a democracy. Jesus is high priest, so let us come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing we have him as an advocate. He walked and felt our pain. Jesus is returning, so let us join in the Spirit's mission to make Jesus' name known among every tribe and nation. He's king of the universe. There's nothing Satan can do about it. But Satan can do this. He can try and put a veil over your mind so that a hundred things which will all pass away seem to shine more brightly than the kingship of Jesus. I need to resist him firm in my faith. I need to draw near to God and he will draw near to me. He will take away the veil that you might see the ascension for what it really is the homecoming and coronation of the Son of God, the validation of the sufficiency of his sacrifice for sin, 
the inauguration of his intercessory work, and the installation as the sovereign God-man over all the enemies of the church. Amen? So, just a little glimpse ahead for what's next now that we're done with Luke. And it's actually a, a good, potentially a good segue into a series that we're going to do over the next eight to nine weeks. We're going to be teaching on what we would call ecclesiology, study of the church. This is where Luke leaves off and Acts begins. And so we feel it's important that we spend some time focusing on the church. What is it? Why does it matter? How is it ordered? What is it supposed to be doing? It's very important for our current direction and our future direction. It's very important for us if we want to be one-minded, striving together for the faith of the gospel as a church, the household of God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend some time spent some time on uh, a, lot, a series of passages. Now, it will be somewhat topical in nature, but we're going to be using passages that are key passages along the way that we use as focal points as we go through the material. So, please be here. It's important. We feel it's very important that all of us really grasp the significance of the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Ah, it is so rich. It is so good. And it is so comforting. And it does bring us joy. And with that joy, we now can worship meaningfully. And a kind of worship is now what we're going to do, which is communion. And we're going to remember Jesus and what he did. So thank you for this morning. Thank you for your blessing and your provision. We lift up the rest of our morning in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.